I have a sports question for you this morning. Do you remember who won Super Bowl 38? <laughs> Do you remember who played? <laughs> it was held on February 1st, 2004 in Houston. So don't remember? It was, it was the Carolina Panthers against the New England Patriots. But you might remember Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson. There was a brand new term that was, co that was uh, coined at that time. It actually ended up in the dictionary at the halftime show, wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> this is part of their musical finale. Mr. Timberlake was supposed to tear away a part of Ms. Jackson's jersey and ended up exposing a prominent part of her female anatomy for about a second. And the founders of YouTube say that's what really launched their site, which is kind of a sad commentary. But we arrive at Colossians chapter 3 this morning, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul makes major use of terms relating to taking off and putting on clothing to describe what our union with Christ looks like. Unlike entertainers, God doesn't use his doffing and donning process to malfunction. It's an eternal change that outfits us for life here on earth and on into eternity. But if we fail to do what God requires of us, we can really experience a true wardrobe malfunction. So that in mind, let's pray. I thank you, Father, that you have brought us together this morning to worship, to take seriously the claims you have on our lives, to offer up praise, to recognize who we are relative to who you are, and thank you for the humbling process that is. But I also thank you, Father, that you have linked us inseparably with your son, Jesus. We are in Christ as your, as your people. That's just an amazing concept, Father, that we are so inseparably linked to the, the Lord Jesus Christ that we are seen by you as one with him. And I thank you, Father, that because of that, we have reason to live not just in this life, but on into eternity. And I just thank you, Father, that you have made it so clear in your word, as you're going to this morning, just what an amazing process that is that you've done for us and keep doing in our lives. So help us, Father, this morning to be attentive to what your word has to say. Help us to put into practice what we hear, what we, what you, we each one see ourselves as we look into your word, and help us to be faithful servants of yours. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's begin with this. The first four verses deal with this topic. Christians must set their hearts on things above. If then, or actually since, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So in this letter that Paul has written to the Christians at Colossae, he has moved from the person of Jesus Christ to Christian doctrine, and now onto the topic of godliness or holiness. But why? Because for the Apostle Paul, doctrine never is, has done what it's intended to do unless there's a change, a life change leading to godliness. And just knowing things themselves is not God's ultimate goal for us. I mean, even demons know that. Conforming to the image of Christ is the ultimate goal. And doctrine exists 
for the purpose of leading us to that godliness and to that holiness. Another way of looking at it is this. In the first two chapters, Paul has shown us who Christ is and who we are in Christ. Theologians tell us that this shows us the indicative, who we are, what we are, how we stand in Christ, what we have become in Christ. He does that in the first two chapters. The beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, where we are today, he tells what we have to do because we are in Christ. The indicative gives way to the imperative, the statements of fact to the commands. Who we are in Christ now to what we do because we're in Christ. In other words, just to greatly simplify this, you're in Christ, now be who you are. Now we already saw that the false teachers in Colossae were 180 degrees wrong. We saw this at the end of chapter 2, where he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and an asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They will not provide the spiritual transformation that you're really seeking. There's no activity done from earth that's going to bring about a relationship with God. If God doesn't initiate a personal relationship, it won't happen. It's always top-down, not bottom-up. Which is why Paul begins chapter 3 the way he does. He says, you're in Christ. You're united in Christ. So certain facts now are true about you. Now live in a way that flows out of the reality of the fact that you're one with Christ. That you're in union with Christ. Our life and our destiny as Christians are bound up inseparably with Christ. We've already seen in the, in the book of Colossians so far that as Christ died, he says, we died with him. When he died, we were buried with him. As he is resurrected, we were raised with him. And when he appears in glory upon his return, he says we will appear with him. So becoming a Christian is a whole lot matter more than just praying a prayer. Repentance is the entry point into being so united to Christ that Paul says we are in him. He is our new identity. And it's not a hyphenated identity either. God sees each of us in one of two families. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. We are born in Adam and we stay that way unless God intervenes and bring us into the kingdom of his dear son in Christ. The scriptures also declare something that's really important about us and that is the most important things about us are invisible. No one can understand the issues that you're facing, the ones that determine who you are and, and what you do by looking at you or using any other senses that we have available. Your history is invisible. You might have a few snapshots taken at various times in your life, maybe even a video. But those are only minute portions of your overall life, and they've just been captured in some way to be seen. Nobody can see your goals, what you long for, or where you're headed just by looking at you. Nobody knows what you feel at a deep level just by looking at you. The things that make you interesting, or maybe a pain in the neck, are almost all invisible. Yet these are the most important things about you. So what's the most important thing about you that's true of you as a Christian? You're united to Jesus Christ. You've died, you've been raised with Christ, and your life is hidden in him, in God. 
And that can't be proved by how you look. Nothing you can measure, touch, and show anybody else. Union with Christ is the greatest truth that you can imagine, but it's one we have to choose to believe and act on because it's hidden. But there is a new age coming. God's already at work in producing it. It's already begun within us. But it's invisible to the world around us. One of these days, the curtain's going to be lifted. And as Paul puts it in Romans 8, the whole universe is standing on tiptoe, craning its neck, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. That's the goal that God is moving toward in this world. As we see all the darkness and despair, the, the trials and hurt all around, but God has a purpose in all these in developing us more and more, moving us toward a certain accomplishment that's going to be fulfilled when Christ returns. But right now, it's pretty much hidden. For, so verse 3 stresses, the believers must not live by sight, rather by faith, based on our resurrected identity with Christ in the heavenly temple. We have to continue to trust that our hope has been laid up in heaven, where our inheritance is, even though you can't see it or you can't feel it in the present. And he's saying that trust like that will protect you from false teachers who live by sight with visions of angels, driving their beliefs from maybe special experiences. And Paul wants us to see Christ as our heavenly focus, in contrast to the false teacher's focus on emotion and self-abasement and rules and regulations. So he's telling us that we need to continue to remember who we are now, but also who we once were, but aren't any longer, and who we will be when Christ returns, which is really the true basis for living a Christian life. Back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul stated it like this, Therefore, as you, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, walk, of course, merely consists of two steps, one in front of the other, and it's repeated over and over again. Usually not a complicated thing. In the same way, the Christian life is a matter of taking two steps, one step after another. And those two steps follow with this passage. Put off the old man, put on the new man. Then repeat. Put off the old, put on the new. Nature abhors a vacuum, so it's always put off the old, but then replace it with the new. Keep walking through every day just like that, which is how scripture exhorts us to live. So first of all, he's going to get into, well, what do we have to put off? This is where we get to meddling. When we get to verse 12, and following, we're going to look at a list of things that we get to put on, things from above. But first, we're going to talk about the list of things that are linked to earthly life that we need to be putting to death, keep putting to death, to remove from our consciousness. Remember, dead things have no power over us, unless we choose to allow it. So let's look at verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. 
So therefore, once again, there's that word we always like to look at. So in light of what Paul just wrote, namely that we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God, he says we need to take some action. However, the actions that he's dealing with here are not external behaviors only, but we're to use the resources that we have in Christ to work from the inside out. This new life is centered deep within. We've been renewed in our inner person at the deepest levels, but we still live in a world that's enslaved to death and decay. We're in Christ, but we still have to live in a world that's full of misdirection, requiring us to strive to allow Christ's life to come to the fore. So this section, even though it's talked about a lot of negative things, is rooted in the teachings of those first four verses. And we see they're dominated by two negative commands. He says, put to death, in verse 5, and put away, in verse 8. And he draws attention to the parallel between these two by elaborating on them in very similar ways. In both cases, he has a command with a listing of a general class of sins. And then he goes into more detail by listing five particular vices associated with them. And then he concludes with a bit more detail about the last item in each list. So the first list deals in general with sexual sins, while the one in verse 8 singles out sins related to interpersonal relationships. If you're going to summarize categories of sin that cause personal and interpersonal difficulties and a lot of damage, you'd hardly miss if you included sex and anger. So in each case, the command that's given here is a call to respond and cooperate with the transforming power that has implanted in us when we became Jesus followers. So let's look at the first list. And if we reverse the list and actually look from heart to action, from inside out, we see that someone who sins sexually starts out in idolatry. That is, they have bowed before another master other than Christ. They want, or they want, or they covet, actually the, the term is here, and covet means not just that you want something somebody else has, you actually question whether they actually deserve it. It really belongs... What they have really belongs to me. That's covetousness. That's even more than greed. But that's a form of idolatry. Because people like that when you're in this category, you want, you covet, you desire to have more sexual gratification. Which is kind of, an, I think, an indication of the insidiousness of this kind of sin. It's a greed-like sin. It's a sin that involves appetites that are never satisfied. I mean, the mind, you can see the progression here. The mind is involved with evil desire that moves the body to have passions that are dishonoring to God. And this, in turn, leads to sinful patterns on the inside, culminating in immoral sexual acts on the outside. So here's your first self-test. Are you on that spectrum someplace? And if so, what are you going to do about it? what Paul is telling us is we've got to break that chain for the glory of Christ if we're going to walk in the spirit we can't bow to other masters we can't go down this path (coughs) now for many people this area of life is a constant battlefield or maybe we decided to battle too much and we've just dropped out of the battle 
We've given up trying to resist the temptations, figure I can't do anything about it anyway. I'm powerless. But God has commanded us to put this area of sin to death. And if he's commanded it, that means he's also provided the power to accomplish what he wants. A command really is a promise in disguise in Scripture. Well, if we go to the second list of the five sins, in verse 8, we're once again exhorted to stop doing things because we can stop. And these things he are characterized as by coming out of your mouth. So this list is a sampling of how we use words to divide from one another and even destroy how the body of Christ functions. I don't have to give uh, definitions for the terms that are there in verse 8. Any dictionary will do. Nothing special about looking at the Greek. But you get the gist of what Paul's writing about just by reading them. You know what those words mean. And just like the first list, we're told that we're different. And as a result, then we can act differently. A change has come. You're no longer who you once were. Your life is no longer linked with the old Adam, but with the new Adam, who is Jesus himself. You put on the new self, which is growing, it says, and increasing in knowledge, and also increasing in power. But Paul gives a reason why both these lists, why all these sins, need to be put to death. He says they do not characterize someone who is in Christ. Because all people deserve wrath because of sin, including these sexual sins and these speech sins. And he said, before Christ entered into your life, sin used to characterize you. He says, these are things you used to walk in when you were living in them. But now Christ has changed you. He says, you are adopted into God's family as a joint heir with Jesus of all things. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you to put those sins to death. We have sinned. We will sin. But we don't have to sin. We need to heed what the Apostle John tells us. In chapter 1, or 1 John, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God that we sinned, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the ones we can't remember. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So God has given us the ability to keep short accounts. We can confess or agree with God about our sin and we can rest in his forgiveness. We don't have to rely on our feelings. Thank the Lord for that. And this is a moment-by-moment -moment process. I was able to attend the 25th anniversary of my dad's sobriety with AA program. And I vividly remember a conversation he had with a young man that my dad was working with. And this young man asked my, asked my dad, how did you stay sober for 25 years? My dad said, I didn't. I stayed sober for a minute at a time, maybe up to five minutes at a time. And if you string enough of those short things together, eventually you get to 25 years. Now that's the same process we have to adopt if we're going to put sin to death in our lives. Because God always favors faithful endurance over instant deliverance. A lot more in Scripture about endurance than there is about deliverance. So in verse 9, Paul says that Christians have put off like a garment the old self with its practices. That's what happened at conversion. Our old unbelieving self died and we sloughed it off 
like a butterfly sloughs off its old worm-like chrysalis when the springtime of salvation comes. Then verse 10 states the positive, positive counterpart to the sloughing off of the old self. It says the Christians have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So in conversion, what happened was that we sloughed off the old self and we put on the new self. And that was given to us. We didn't just decide to do this on our own. We didn't have to make it happen ourselves. Verse 12 makes it clear that it was God who was initiating power behind this metamorphosis, behind this new birth. And Paul refers to believers as those who have been chosen by God. He says, holy and loved. So the reason why we experienced this sloughing off of the old self and the putting on of a new self was that God loved us and he chose us and he set us apart as holy to the Lord. We are elect, we are holy, we are loved. In other words, God took the initiative with us. God elected, God sanctified, God loved. Which is pretty important. Because God was up to something when he did this. In creating new people in his own image, by his own power, he was destroying distinctions that we always like to boast about. Distinctions that separate us, that make us suspicious of other people, and distrustful and, and puffed up ourselves. So his aim in creating these new people was they'd stop boasting the things that separated them and boast in Christ who unifies, which is the whole point of verse 11. Referring back to verse 10, where the newest self has been put on and is being renewed, Paul says in the fellowship created by those new people who are chosen, holy, and loved, and loved, he says there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So God actually created and is creating a new community out of the people who have sloughed off their old selves and put on their new selves. And the mark of this new chosen and holy community is the people in it stop cherishing the things that separate Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. The new people in this new community that he's created don't boast in ethnic differences, don't boast in language differences or intellect or culture or race or homeland or social status. He says these things have passed away. And the number one primary mark of newness in the new people and the new community is that Christ is in all and Christ is all. It's Christ plus nothing again. Now once we bragged about our significance and our security and what we were in relation to other people, you know, like we're Jews, we're Greeks, we're circumcised, we're free, we're American, we're vaccinated, we're rich, we're smart, we're strong, but then he says we sloughed off that old self and we put on the new self. And the core, core essence of this new self is that Christ alone is everything. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me, as Paul told us in Galatians. That takes us to the next section, our final section this morning. <clears throat> put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Marty and I had discussed about stopping this section of scripture where a lot of commentaries stop, which is at verse 11. 
But we said we didn't want to leave off just dwelling on the putting off part without at least starting on the putting on part. Marty gets to finish the putting on part next week. And if your child comes in covered with mud from a newly formed rain puddle, your instruction usually is to go and put on clean clothes. But in order to do that, you assume that the person is going to, his, your young child is going to remove his dirty clothes first. Right? <laughs> Could be a bad assumption, but. But isn't it interesting that, that Paul is writing to this little congregation in the backwater town of Colossae, and he get the, conferring on them the same blessings that were given to, by God to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. They were called God's chosen people. And now Paul is saying to this little group of Christians in Colossae, you are the chosen people of God. God has chosen you, and he has elected you for holiness of life, for service of his church. And his election of you is proof of his love for you. And because of who you are, because you are his chosen people, therefore, I want you to put off the old life, and I want you to put on the new life. Dress yourself in the reality of what's going to be the new creation. Which is what he talks about it particularly in verse 12. Another list of five things. I think it's not three or seven, it's actually five. But it's three times, so I guess that counts. He says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now those aren't just five separate things. They're connected to one another. They're like circles that are earlocked. It's like a Venn diagram. And these five virtues, if you will, are actually the flip side of those five vices that we saw in verse 8. Once again, they're dealing with interpersonal relationships that are always an issue in any kind of a family gathering, especially a church gathering. But there can be a lot of confusion among believers right at this point. Many seem to find great difficulty in, in putting on these positive virtues and maybe as you begin your day or throughout the day. Maybe because we don't understand or haven't put into practice what the apostle said earlier, which is a put off the old man. Learn to recognize the characteristics of the old life, that self-centered, praise-loving, prideful flesh in every one of us. He says to reject that, put it off. Do as Paul says in the previous paragraph, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Treat it as though you are dead to it. There's a parallel passage in Romans 6 that Paul talks about the very same thing, which is consider yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. If something is dead, it no longer has any control over you. And you can do this, he says, because God has given you a whole new basis of operation. You don't operate the same way as you used to. And he intends that we be motivated <clears throat> to fulfill his precepts because he's given us the power to do so. And of course, you're not going to recognize that you have that power unless you put it into practice, which is by faith. Because commands by themselves don't imply that you have the required strength to obey them. Commands only set a standard really for what's expected. Which is why Paul has mixed the commands of our standing in Christ to show that the basis of fulfilling the commands is Christ's and God's power. That's what provides the motivation to obey. And God has a continuous supply of power available to us. There's no supply chain interruptions with God. 
Now, the situation is somewhat analogous to the snowstorm we had back in February 2018. You may remember that. The snow, I remember, came in waves out of the north, and I was tempted to shovel the snow in between them before it got too deep. But all I had was a grain scoop. And so I figured, you know, why go out and shovel each layer? My enthusiasm and motivation was lacking because I knew how much work was involved. Eventually, I was questioning as to why I didn't go out and shovel the walk in the driveway. But I had no desire to respond positively to the command. I let the snow continue to build up until the storm was over, and then reluctantly I went out to remove it. I had no motivation to clear away the snow because I didn't have the power to do it very effectively. The motivation was shot. Now, a neighbor with a bright new red shiny snowblower has all the desire in the world to go out after every single wave of snow that comes in and blow the snow away because he has the power to remove it effectively. When we have the power to do something, the motivation for doing it just follows naturally. I think it's the same with commands in Scripture, which are addressed to believers. The, the true Christian, one who is truly a new creation in Christ, has the power to please God and is therefore motivated to fulfill God's commands whenever they're presented to us. We want to please God because he's our Father who's adopted us in sons and daughters which is why the New Testament writers repeatedly remind us to participate in God's plan for this world while exhorting us to be obedient, to live in the Heavenly Father. The two are not contradictory. Well, the upshot of this passage in Colossians is that when a person is identified with Christ, his or her position in the old sinful creation has been destroyed, and we've begun to be part of a new creation. So the true believer is one who is no longer an unbelieving old self, but instead is a believing new self. And since the new self is not yet perfected, sin still indwells us as a result of the powers of evil, the influence of the world, and of course the influence of our living in a fallen body. But the key point is that the major battle is over. The enemy has already been led victorious, we saw in the last chapter, to the cross. We've experienced a decisive death as Christ died and a decisive victory by being identified with him in his resurrection. Sin remains, but the power of the new is dominant. And slowly but surely, it will come to dominate over our sinful impulses. The perfection will never be reached until the final resurrection of the body at the end of the age. Wish I had a better ending. <clears throat> I'm trying to come up with a way of illustrating this reality that occurs. I want to remind you or introduce you to <clears throat> Tales of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, supposedly a kid's book or a series of books. But in this book, we meet the character Eustace at the very beginning of the book with this preamble. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> Because Eustace is one of those characters that you want to punch in the face. That is, until his experience was transformed by Aslan, who is the, the lion who pictures Jesus. 
Remember that Eustace, he was the arrogant, self-centered, and he was all around annoying to Edmund and Lucy, who were the hero and heroine of this book. <clears throat> but it's on one of the islands that the crew lands on that Eustace finds a dragon's lair, and you know he's very greedy for the treasure. He puts on a gold bracelet and falls asleep, and he wakes up, guess what? He's been turned into a dragon. And Lewis writes it this way, Sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he'd become a dragon himself. So Eustace had fleeting thoughts of relief at being the biggest thing around, but he quickly realizes that he's actually now cut off from his friends, and actually all of humanity at this point, and, and he feels the real weight of loneliness, and he desperately wants to change. So one night, Aslan comes to Eustace and leads him to a large well, he says, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. That's how Eustace describes the scene to Edmund after the fact. He says the water was so clear and he thought if he could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in his leg from the gold bracelet he put on when he was human. But Asim told him he had to undress first. This is what God asks of us. As Lewis wrote in another article, his letters to Malcolm, we must lay before God what is in us not what ought to be in us. So Eustace began peeling off his scaly skin. But every layer he peeled off, he found there was still another layer of scales underneath. He was still the dragon, no matter how many layers he peeled off. And then Eustace continues this way. He said, then the lion said, I don't know if it spoke, he'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay down flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And then he'd been pulling the skin off, and it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you ever picked a scab off a sore place. It hurts like Billy O, but it's so much fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. And there was I as smooth and soft as the peeled switch and smaller than I had been before. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now, and I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain was gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a, turned into a boy again. And he, his conclusion, the author's conclusion, is it would be nice and fairly nearly true say that from that time on, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There are still many days when he could still be very tiresome. Most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. If we think we can pull off our sinful desires on our own, we're going to be as frustrated as Eustace was, Eustace was trying to peel off his dragon scales. Once we recognize that the power we have because of this intimate union we have with Christ, we can draw on his power to resist those temptations before they become sin, these temptations that come our way through the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the real test that Paul gives us here is that when we function together as the church, as Christ's body, will we allow divisive people to govern our attitudes toward one another? Or will we seek to temper our knowledge of truth with love for one another? Remember, God changed our wardrobe when he brought us to Christ. In Christ, which is where we are, 
God has taken the, removed the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh that's eternal. And our job after that is to let our new relationship work itself out in our attitudes and actions. Until we think and act consistently with our new identity. That's called sanctification. Any wardrobe malfunctions are on us. Which is why 1 John 1, 9 is so important. If you fail to allow Christ to control you, you must confess and immediately act once again as Jesus did. There are many ways these days, these days to divide us one from another. But when Christ is all in all and in all, it's love and respect that Paul says is going to govern how we live with each other. And people will know that Christ is all when they see us living that way with one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Let's pray. Father, in some ways these are, these are hard words. On the other hand, they're liberating words. You don't command us to put off things that you haven't given us the power to, to be able to do. You haven't left us defenseless. You've given us much more than we ever realized. We recognize that our job really is to <clears throat> allow our outward actions, our attitudes, to actually line up with who we are in Christ, which is why your word is so key. We need to understand what Christ is like so that we can emulate him, so that we can actually use those same attitudes that he has and put it into practice in our lives. I thank you, Father, you didn't leave us defenseless. You've given us the very power of the resurrection to operate in our lives. Father, would you help us to recognize that and to act on it, to actually be able to live by putting off and putting on one step at a time, step after step, through each day. Just thank you for doing these things because we're asking it in Jesus' name. We know it's your will. Amen.